Okay, flip to Judges chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. Tonight we're going to talk about creature worship or creation worship. Judges chapter 2 verse 6 through chapter 3 verse 6. And we're going to go ahead and read that passage. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. I'm actually going to read, um, let's just read 11 through 15. Judges 2, verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh and served the Baals. And they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked Yahweh to anger. So they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies." Wherever they went, the hand of Yahweh was against them for evil, as Yahweh had spoken, and as Yahweh had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. And then verse 16, Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have gathered this evening to sing, pray, fellowship, and hear from your word. And I ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds and as we seek to understand more of you and what it is you are doing in history. Father, we desire to be equipped so that we can engage the world around us, and thus we ask that you would help us in this endeavor. We thank you that your Son has been established as the world's true Lord and King, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we are uh, back in Judges. Uh, Next week, as I mentioned, we'll have a break from that, but several of you commented last week to me that one thing was helpful to you was seeing the book set in context with the rest of the books which surround it. Uh, For example, Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges, and Samson, who comes later in the book of Judges, is actually a contemporary of the prophet Samuel. And kind of also with that, the, the last two sections of Judges are actually out of chronological order, but they're there for a theological reason. Uh, as we'll see when we get there. But the dates for the date range ish for the book of Judges is roughly 1400 BC to 1100 BC, a total of about 300 years. And I think that knowing this context as well as the geographical context really helps us to understand the Bible. Speaking of geography, if it may be helpful for you to go in the back of your Bible, if you have a Bible, see. Uh, See if there are maps there. Some Bibles have maps, some don't. It's just sort of a feature of some and not others. But uh, you can look and see the map of the geography of this region and kind of get an idea for, what, for what's going on. When you see names and places, those types of things, it's helpful to know that. And sometimes they're not as detailed, and you can usually find it online. Uh, but that'll help you kind of navigate everything that's going on in the book of Judges, because it seems rather chaotic, and there are sort of quick stories here and another one here, and there's a a wide range of places that are discussed, and it might be helpful 
to get a foothold on what transpires in the narratives. At any rate, last week we had an introduction to the book, and this section tonight is actually an introduction as well. The first chapter into chapter 2, verse 5, which is what we covered last week, is more of a narratival introduction. It's just an explanation of what took place. And when we get to chapter 2, verse 6, which is what we're going to look through tonight, we're told about Joshua again. We're reminded about his death at the age of 110. So there's another introduction here in our text tonight, but it isn't, this one isn't a narrative. It's actually more of a moral indictment. It's not so much storytelling and what took place and where. It's actually more of a moral judgment. It's less of a story, and it's actually more of an introduction to the themes of the book. It's preparing you, the reader, for what is, what is to come and what's going to be highlighted. Regarding some thematics to our present discussion, this passage really has one overarching theme in, in that it warns against creature worship or creation worship. We have already seen in our study of the Ten Commandments that Father Yahweh rescued when he rescued his son Israel out of Egypt. That is set within the context of grace and mercy and compassion. He didn't have to rescue them, but he did, and that was an act of grace, a miraculous act of grace. Yahweh struck down the Egyptians and their accompanying false gods, and he entered into covenant with his people, and he gave them a covenant law to abide by. Uh, a way of new life, we might say. They were to have this law written on their hearts, which we know is a feature of the New Testament, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. But kind of go back with me for a second to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, which speaks of loving Yahweh with the entirety of one's being, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And <laughs> Deuteronomy 6 speaking of making sure that the children are on the same covenant page by teaching them the covenant law often. But Deuteronomy 6 explains the nature of this law-heart relationship we find in Scripture. We all know that repetition aids in learning, right? Sort of like memorizing your math facts. You just sort of have to burn it into your brain. And repetition does, in fact, help. Uh, it's helpful to read a book and then talk to somebody about it. Because if you can rehearse it and regurgitate it, you've actually learned it even more because you'll remember it uh, going forward. So repetition aids in learning. So constantly keeping the law on the forefront of one's minds, you know, your mind, keeping, keeping the, that's why the Jewish people put phylacteries on, strap it to their head and on their arms and so forth. But keeping the law on the forefront of one's mind and in the details of one's life helps to push it into the heart. That was always the goal. It's not just knowing the law for the sake of knowing the law, but it's loving the law, growing to cherish it. And children, that's your job too, is to grow to love the Lord and cherish His Word. So that's, it's sort of like taking it from the outside and pushing it on the inside. And we know that's what the Spirit does in the age of the New Covenant. But even in the Old Covenant, that was the aim. It was always to get it inside. While many Israelites strayed from his commands, Yahweh always had a faithful remnant chosen by grace who would not bow the knee to the nature lord of the Canaanite religion, Baal, or Baal, if you want to be uh, uh, in with the Hebrew. <laughs> and this is because Yahweh demands exclusive allegiance. And he had reiterated that to his people 
many, many times. And as we saw last week, there's really no room for duplicitous hearts. There's no room for idols in your heart and Jesus. The human heart is incapable of worshiping the God who made it and at the same time, the idols that entice it. As Jesus taught us, the human heart does not have the capacity to hold multiple gods. You can't do it. And last week's narrative showed us the inexorable declension and decline that came to Israel because of her lack of faith. And tonight we're going to see more of the underpinnings of that unbelief. And so let's work our way through the text. And we're just going to summarize as we go. In verses 6 through 10, we have a rehearsal of the story of Joshua. Having entered the land, Joshua sent the people away and told them to go and receive their inheritance. And that's actually, we learn of that from Joshua chapter 24. And again, the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges kind of overlaps. And note that it was an inheritance. He says, go and receive your inheritance. Father Yahweh has given you a gift. Go and receive it. It was an inheritance. It's not something that they earned. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh had been gracious. But look at verse 7. And the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who saw all the great work of Yahweh which he had done for Israel. Now the tone here is rather striking. Joshua and his generation had seen the power of Yahweh at work in the world. Uh, They had possessed the land in miraculous ways. Just think of the Jericho story. March around it, blow the trumpets, everything falls. That's a miracle. That's not something that they did in their own volition. And most importantly, they had stayed the course in serving Yahweh. Jump with me to chapter 3, verse 6, because you need to see this. If you jump to chapter 3, verse 6, we read that the Israelites would go on to serve their gods. See that last section of the verse there? They went on to serve their gods, the gods of the Canaanites. Dylan said, You got to serve somebody. So you got to serve somebody. And we'll see more of what that means shortly. So Joshua dies at the age of 110. Moses died at the age of 120. Uh, He was buried with his family. However, immediately we're told in verse 10, go back to chapter 2, verse 10, that we have a problem. In verse 10, we find that once the previous generation had died off, that first generation, another generation arose who did not know Yahweh or even the work which he had done for Israel. Interesting. The first generation failed to teach the second generation how to believe on God and be awed by His marvelous works. How to believe on God and be awed by His marvelous works. This is the very definition of a breakdown in a family structure. And this problem will rear its ugly head throughout the book. But how does this happen? Think for a moment. How does this even happen? How does something get derailed so quickly within one generation? How does... One generation changed everything for the worst. How is that possible? Well, uh, James Jordan has some interesting insight here, so I want to quote him. And he goes back to the Garden of Eden. Here's what he said. Adam had three priestly tasks to perform with Eve. He was to guard her, he was to give her food, and he was to instruct her. You got that so far? 
Guard her, give her food, and instruct her. We see him failing at all three in the moment when sin entered into the world. He stands by and lets her do all the talking with the serpent. In fact, Genesis 3.6 tells us that he was with her, so he was there, present. He takes the forbidden fruit from her hand, the opposite of what he was supposed to do in providing for her. He took from her, and thus he does not protect her, which is what he was supposed to do in the garden. He was supposed to, as a priest, guard and protect the garden. He should have taken a shovel and jammed it right through the serpent's mouth, but that's not what happened. Jordan goes on. Now in Christ, we see the reverse of this. He protects the bride. He gives food to the bride from the tree of life, and he instructs the bride. End quote. If you want to destroy a culture, destroy the family. If you want to destroy a family, follow in Adam's footsteps. The best way to destroy the future is to have a myopic outlook that fails to live within the confines of God's covenant blessings. And again, if you're only using your eyes, you're going to have a bad time. Look at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh and served the Baals, and they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked Yahweh to anger. So they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. Only God is able to see perfect moral judgments. Remember we talked about the problem in Judges is everybody's seeing with their eyes. They're only doing what's right in their own eyes. But here Yahweh sees, right? The sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. So only God sees perfectly. Only God has the perfect moral judgment to execute justice. Only God can do that. He saw, all the, um, he saw all the evil that Israel had done. There's a two-step process we're going to come back to. But first, they forsook Yahweh. That's step one. You want to destroy a culture? The next generation? Forsake Yahweh. The word there simply means what it says, by the way. The word forsook. They forsook. They abandoned. They neglected God. Um, a literal translation of the Hebrew might be they left Him behind. So they forsook Yahweh. They left him behind. They abandoned him. Uh, God had brought them out of the land of Egypt, but in their hearts and minds, they left Yahweh back in Egypt. I think that's how we're supposed to understand that. So that's step one. Forsake Yahweh. Leave him back in Egypt. Step two, they followed other gods. They followed other gods. Israel followed after. They chased after. They sought out other gods. The longings in the hearts, their longings in, the heart, in their hearts led them to longing after other gods with their mind, with their bodies. That's how this breaks down. In other words, sort of bringing it to us, the human heart, if it's not preoccupied with the glories of Christ, will go and search for something else to glorify. Always. Always. The human heart, if it's not preoccupied with the glories of Christ, we'll go and search for something else to glorify. And who did they seek out? Who did Israel seek out? This next generation, who did they seek out? Well, the gods of the Canaanites, of course. Go figure. You, you spend time entertaining the gods around you, and eventually you start looking like them. 
And by the way, that's why so many Christians today are so statist in their thinking. It's all they've ever known. How many, how many, I'm curious, how many of you here were told by your parents that taxation is theft? <laughs> well, okay, how many of you adults here were told by your parents? All the kids here know that. <laughs> okay, so you guys are growing up in a way different world. I was in public school being taught that it's the price you pay to live in a civilized society as we butcher children and everything else goes on. Is that civilized? I don't want to participate. But the two main gods of the Canaanite culture and religion were a husband and wife duo. Baal, he was the male principal, and Ashtaroth, the female principal. Now Baal, he was the son of El in the religious taxonomy of Canaan, and he was the god behind nature. He was the god behind, they sort of divvy them up. You know, the Greek gods are all that way, the Roman gods. Some are in charge of the sea, some of them are in charge of the, the skies, and so on and so forth. But that's Baal. He was the god of the nature, uh, of the natural world, so to speak. Specifically, Baal, he controlled the rain, and thus he controlled the crops. By the way, Baal, or Baal, literally means lord or master. And in many ways, it's the name that is given generally to a litany of other gods as well. But we are told in verse 11 that the Israelites serve the Baals, which is the plural form representing the various manifestations of the singular god of, of weather. Now, Baal had a wife, or at least a lover, and her name was Ashtaroth. Actually, the, Phoenicians, the Phoenician deity's name is Astarte, and she was the goddess of both love and war, um, also known as Ishtar, um, um, Isis, and Aphrodite. So, sort of Phoenician, Greek, all of those things sort of blend in together. But the basic idea is this, and this is, kind of goes back to even like Egyptian religion as well, but the sun god in Egyptian culture, Ra, um, the sun god and the primordial goo of the world got together and had children, us, <laughs> uh, and the animals, too. It is creature and creation worship in that these false gods were believed to control the fertility of both the land and the people. So if you wanted children and you wanted a productive farm, well, you needed to participate in some sort of activity. And, well, that's how it works, and I'll explain that in a second, but Baalism in short, was the worldview that said that, that said that nature is a power, nature is a force. Think of Star Wars, right? The force. Sort of, that's Baalism. Uh, that nature is a power that's out there on its own. It's a force that's out there on its own. And it can be stimulated and controlled by man. Not talking about what we do now to control the weather, of course. But a basic input by man would be an output, a predictable output by Baal. If you did certain things, this would happen. Temple prostitution. Temple prostitution was important in the land of Canaan because this act of fornication meant that Baal and the Ashtaroth would mimic their attempts at fertility and thus they would bless the land with suitable vegetation and so forth. And the interesting thing here is that Yahweh is the one who promises fruitfulness. 
You note that in Deuteronomy especially? Yahweh is the one who promises fertility, fruitfulness, both in generating children and in the productivity of the land. And it was a moral connection. You didn't have to participate in temple prostitution. You simply obeyed Yahweh. You obey him. He would bring the blessings of the covenant to bear. That's Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 29. If you obey him, there are general predictable sanctions of blessing that will come your way. Okay? So that's the religion of of Yahweh. So there was a moral connection. But in Canaan, the opposite took place. Okay, if you could, you could stimulate nature with child sacrifice or temple prostitution, and, and then blessings would occur. But the man had to go and do that. And I guess the women just stayed back in, in home. And James Jordan also points out, and this is interesting, that kind of the, the, I guess the flip side of the coin, but true religion means that man is in submission to God. First and foremost, man is in submission to God. While the false religion of creature worship means that man is actually in control of the Lord and he is actually the Lord of his God. Okay, there's never a time when we're going to go up to heaven and demand something from God and he's going to just give it. But creature worship is always the man being in control of his God. Trying to manipulate him. Trying to coerce them into bringing blessings. And Israel had been looking with their eyes rather than hearing with their ears. So as a result of Israel going down this road of Baalism and the Ashtaroth and and all these different pagan ideologies, as a result of that spiritual fornication, Yahweh's anger burned against them. That's verse 14. Yahweh's anger burned against them. God handed the Israelites over to their heart's desires and they became the slaves of the sin that they had longed for. And that's what, by the way, God's wrath does. We think of God's wrath as like Sodom and Gomorrah moment. You know, when's God going to rain down fire on D.C.? You know, it's like any day now, right? But actually, the wrath of God is giving us over to our lusts. If you find yourself being given over to those things, God's wrath is upon you. And that's what our culture is right now. So in this case, God's enemies that they were supposed to purge from the land, now became their overlords. And verse 15 goes further. Whatever they went, wherever they went, it was the hand of Yahweh that was against them for evil. Interestingly enough. Now the rest of the chapter tells us that Yahweh raised up judges to deliver His people. That's verse 16. But the problem is, They didn't always listen to them either because they were too busy playing the harlot, turning wise, uh, turning away from the way of their fathers, and instead of obeying the commands of Yahweh, they chose idolatry. Verse 17. The judges, we see in verse 18, were helpful because Yahweh endowed them with his spirit, and he did deliver his people. He was faithful in those events. But when they died, the judge died, the people were back at it. They say, Mom and Dad are gone. Let's wreck the house. You know, That's how the Israelites had treated the land of, of Israel, the land of Canaan, which was to be their land. But God did this all out of pity, mercy, and grace because His bratty children were oppressed. Sort of like that moment of, you know, you guys really deserve this. You deserve for the Philistines to lord over you. You deserve the statism and nature worship that you want. 
but out of my pity, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver you. And then they get delivered. And then what do they do? They act like spoiled brats. And they go back to their sins. And they deserve it. So the anger and wrath of God was, and by the way, even when they didn't repent, he would go in and help them and deliver them. So even, even that's how gracious he is. But the anger and wrath of God was very much present, and he gave them over to their enemies oftentimes. That's verses 20 through 22. Now the cycle here is interesting because this is a cycle I mentioned last week. It shows up seven times in the book. First, and by the way, it's a five-step process. First, Israel turns from God and commits sin. Okay? Sin is always the beginning. Sin is always the start. Second, God sells them into slavery. I'm giving you S's like a good Baptist, okay? Sin is first. Second is slavery. So God sells them into slavery and bondage to the gods that they want. Third, Israel brings supplication, crying out to God, asking for deliverance. Fourth, God raises up a judge to save them. And fifth, Israel sins again. And the cycle starts over. So sin, slavery, supplication, uh, deliverance, or, you know, he saves them. Got to stick with the S's. And fifth, Israel sins again. And that's the cycle, by the way, that the gospel disrupts. Okay? The gospel answers the problem of the progressive deterioration of covenant religion. What's the answer for the first generation to help the second generation not forsake Yahweh and go after other gods? Well, it's pure and undefiled religion, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Now, in chapter 3, just to kind of summarize that, we see two things. First, the fact is God allows some pagan people to remain in the land so the Israelites will learn war. What a fascinating thing to say. I'm going to leave these pagan nature-worshipping people out in the hinterlands who are interspersed with you. I'm going to leave them there so that you will learn war. God tests them on two accounts. First, they need to see that there really is a war going on. It's amazing to me, after two years of this nonsense, people still don't really get it. <laughs> 15 days, 14 days to slow the spread. Maybe they have 14 years, I don't know, but you're really not awake yet. You're really pretending that the trucker convoy isn't happening? <laughs> but here we are. So, so they need to know that there really is a war going on. And, by the way, it's a religious war, no less. We're not so stupid as to think it's really just about medicine and control and vaccines, right? We know that there's something else going on underneath it. So there is a war. Israel needed to know there's a war. We need to know there's a war. It's a religious war primarily. But second, they need to know how to fight this war. So he's testing them on those two fronts. Do you understand that this is a war? Do you understand that you need to know how to fight the war? And it's not primarily with weapons, by the way. In fact, oftentimes these judges would, would win, you know, Gideon, especially with 300 men defeating an army of thousands. It's not about the weapons. It's not about the red button. If you push it, it works, right? It's miraculous. It's trust in God. So it's not by weapons that we win. It's by obedience to Yahweh. And the wars are only won 
when Israel relies solely upon Father Yahweh. That's the lesson. And the wars are only won when Israel gives themselves to Scripture and prayer and faith. That's how you win the war. That is covenant religion. And the second part of this section illustrates the problem. Israel had flunked the test by worshiping false gods, that's idolatry, and by intermarrying, the text says, with the pagan unbelievers of the Canaanite cult. That's spiritual adultery. So surrounded by all the people groups, Israel had dropped the sword of the Word of God, compromised on their convictions, and allowed humanism to plant its flag in the town square. That's the lesson. Instead of exclusively obeying Yahweh, Israel adopted pluralism, allowing other gods in the land. Instead of exclusively having covenant children and covenant families, they, pro- they compromised with unbelief and joined themselves to the sons and daughters of the Canaanites. Instead of exclusive commitment to the commands of Yahweh, the creature was obeyed in God's place. The social order had deteriorated. I want to dig in a little bit more on this. Joshua 24. You can flip there if you want or write it down to go. I'm going to read it anyway. But Joshua 24, I'm going to read verses 19 and 20 and then verse 23. And you need to hear this because it's in your Bible. Joshua 24, verse 19. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve Yahweh, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. Hmm. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, <laughs> sort of if-then statement, right? If you forsake Yahweh, the very thing Judges says they had done, and, that's step one, right? Forsake, and then serve other gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. Verse 23, So now put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Did you know that was in the Bible? We just think, well, God just, he's a forgiving God. and he, God is love. God is love. He loves he loves the sinner but hates the sin. Not what Psalm 5.5 5 says. He hates all evildoers. Now we have an issue, a problem we need to resolve. Can you find, by the way, outside of what Jesus said to the Pharisees, a more scathing, blistering rebuke in Scripture? He says, if you follow these other gods, I'm going to break your legs. <laughs> I will do you harm and consume you. That's not very nice. Does this in any way suggest the possibility of pluralism in a nation? Of neutrality in politics? Of neutrality in the home? Does Joshua believe in religious freedom? Does the Bible believe in religious freedom? The answer, of course, is an emphatic no. The theme that we see in this second introduction pertains to the problem of worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator 
which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. It was referenced earlier. Creature worship is, at its root, the problem with all idolatries. Because we live in God's world and because we are made in His image, all worship that is not heaped back upon Him is thus an idolatry. And we tend to think that there are places in this world that are outside God's purview. That there are physical and even metaphysical places where we can go to escape the accountability of God. Even regenerate Christians can give themselves to idols. But the difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate is the gift of repentance. So be sure to use that often. In God's world, there are only two options, one of which gains you eternal life, the other which gains you eternal torment in hell. Those options hinge upon the object of your worship. Who do you worship? The Creator or the creation? Do you worship the Creator or the creature? That's it. Those are the only two types of people in the world, by the way. You're either a regenerate Christian filled with the Spirit, worshiping the Creator, or you are an unregenerate person who is, I don't care what religious conviction, Islam, it doesn't matter, you are a creature worshiper, you are a creation worshiper. You are an idolater, that's it. Peter Jones describes it like, like this in, in, in his terminology. He says there are the monists or the oneists. The oneists who conflate deity with the creation, they see no decipherable difference between the world and, and a God. Everything is one. That's why they say oneism or uh, a oneist person. Everything is one. You hear that all the time. And then there are the twoists, those of us who believe God is completely separate from the creation, and yet he's intimately involved in it. Those are the options. You're either a oneist or a twoist. Is everything one, or is God distinct from his creation? And we have, we're dealing with two separate things. Those are the options. And the problem of Baalism, by the way, isn't something that has completely gone away. The revival and retrieval of naturalistic Darwinianism is a revitalization effort of nature, nature worship. Survival of the fittest. We all evolved from pond scum. Somehow a fish with one eye got two eyes, and somehow that turned into something else, and here we are today. That is a revival of nature worship. Modern-day nature worship in our time right now is the elevation of science against faith and religion. Okay, when you have a guy like Dr. Fraudchi saying, I am science, you question me, you question science. We have a problem, but that Baalism today is what we are witnessing right now. Science over, ruling over and lording over faith and religion. We, we couldn't possibly have arrived here because of a loving creator. Note the fertility problem of Baalism. Therefore, we must have other naturalistic explanations, right? Religion, it is believed, is nothing, has nothing to do with the material anyway. So why would, you, why would anyone be opposed to mandating masks and jabs anyway? Why, the people who just don't understand why anyone would be opposed to that. And do you see what is happening here? The science, the science, air quotes here, is being crowned Lord and Master over the truth that you and I confess. 
If the truth of the Bible does not comport with the agenda, then it must go, they say. Science becomes immutable, which is hilarious because everything they say changes every five minutes. But science has to be immutable. I mean, it has to be unchanging because it's the science. It's transcending reality. It never changes. It's our authority, right? I mean, that's what we're doing in our nation. And science becomes infallible. Since the infallible Word of God is rendered insufficient, science becomes the infallible Word. It's incapable of making any errors. What we are dealing with is creature and creation worship, a retrieval and reenactment of Baalism to suit modern man. Because we laugh at that stuff, right? How could you believe that there's a God behind nature who you have to sort of manipulate into giving you rain so your crops do well? We laugh at that. But that's what you're seeing right now. It's the same thing. we got to control your body to do what we think it should do in order to prevent what we think needs to be prevented. It's the same thing. But the question is, how do we fight against this? How do we prevent the problem of Judges 2-7 and Judges 3-6? Kind of the bookend, bookend here. In Judges 2-7, the people served Yahweh faithfully. But by the time you get to Judges chapter 3, verse 6, the sons and daughters marry the Canaanite pagan tribes and they serve their gods. How do we prevent that from happening? In a matter of only a few verses, we have generation degeneration, as one author put it. What can we possibly do? Well, Cornelius Van Til once said, he said, men must at all costs be shown the folly of worshiping the creature. Great quote. At the root of all of our evangelism, all of our kingdom-building activities, including homeschooling, your job, all of it, at the root of all of that, we find the most devastating critique of the humanist worldview creature worship, and no one escapes it. And all men must be told this, Van Til says, and he's right. All men must be told this. That's how you handle the whiny socialist college student at George Mason University. Oh, you're a creature worshiper. Okay. That's what they are every single time. Baseline foundation. That's where they're at. And by the way, that's how you handle your own children, parents. That's the only two options. Serve God, fear God, receive His blessing, or go on your own way, worship your own nature, Lord, or your own self, and experience folly and devastation and judgment. That's it. The triune God is to be worshipped and served a specific way. And one thing that is precluded is the deification of His created order. You're not allowed to cut a tree down build a fire, cook some food, and then with the scraps, make a god and bow down before it. Isaiah says that's foolishness. And we are often tempted to act as though God can't hear us. He certainly can't see us, right? I mean, perhaps this is why Israel's faithfulness broke down so quickly from one generation to the next. They could, they could see the temple prostitution. They might have saw it, and it rained the next day and thought, this is pretty great. It's a pragmatic way to have a God. They saw it. They saw the attractiveness of the pagan women. They, they could see with their eyes the Canaanites weren't as bad as they were told. In fact, you know, they're quite friendly when you get to know them. I mean, sure, he worships Baal and Ashtaroth, but 
And they're a little weird in that area, but they're really nice. They had me over for dinner. It was great food. But isn't that the entire problem and the point of judges? Looking with your eyes and only with your eyes. You see, combating a godless culture is part of the Christian program for victory. We are not to cozy up to pagan worldviews and humanist establishments. We are to plunder them. But one of the foremost needs, one of the foremost needs is for us to be able to teach our children how to stay faithful. Isn't that what every single parent in this room wants? We desire strongly for our kids to be faithful to the Lord into the next generation. I mean, this whole cross and crown experiment is built on that premise. I remember talking to Jordan about that before we moved here. Like, we have to have some sort of long-term vision, right? And kids, you're a part of that now. It's not like we're passing the baton when you're 20 or 30 or whatever. You're in it now. But all of us, we want that, don't we? But listen, parents, our children must see the fully orbed experiential religion of our covenant with Christ if they are to carry out the task into the next generation. They need to be able to see it. Generation degeneration happens when we fail to worship God the way He wants to be worshipped. And when we fail to speak of His awesome deeds. Children, listen real quick. Are you still here with me? The people who crossed the Red Sea on dry land, there are people. And God did that, and it was an awesome deed. These stories aren't mere stories. They're historical accounts of our people. If you're in Christ, you're in Abraham. Abraham's our great-great-granddaddy. We've been brought into it. All of that's yours. Noah's Ark, the miracle that that was, that's your story too. It's all ours. See, the deeds of creature worship was a temptation in Israel, and it is a temptation now. But God is greater, and children, you need to know this. You need to feel this, and you need to believe this. And not only must we teach our children, we must fight the idolatry ourselves and teach them how to fight idolatry. And idolatry happens very easily in two steps. One, you intentionally fail to remember and cherish what God has done in Christ. Okay, we take communion to remember. We're supposed to do this in remembrance of Him. Why do you think the Bible says we need to remember it? Well, we're prone to forgetfulness. But idolatry happens, it starts there. When you forget, when you forget, you intentionally or unintentionally fail to remember. And not just remember, but you fail to cherish what Christ has done for you. Not just, oh yeah, He died for my sins. He died for my sins. <laughs> There's a difference. Second, that's the first way to go down idolatry, but the second way is you actively seek to satiate your lusts with the false worship and petty fear of another God. You go from a commitment to Christ to complacency towards Christ and about Christ to an utter compromise of Christ because what do you do? You love the world and not His Word. And idolatry is the belief that slavery to sin is freedom, and freedom in Christ is slavery. And the way out of slavery to sin is to hear the Word and thus see the freedom that Christ gives you as being more powerful, more attractive, more liberating than the idol that you have created. 
And you cannot serve two masters. It it is impossible to maintain the worship of Christ and the worship of other gods. And we should note that false gods always overpromise and under underdeliver. And for far too long we have told the world that it is possible to worship Jesus and Baal. We have told the culture around us that it is better to have a pantheon of gods instead of having the one true God. And we've done this by compromising on God's standards. We have compromised on self-government by farming out our responsibilities to the humanist state. We have, by and large, still we give our children to Pharaoh. I don't understand how Christians are still participating in the government school system. I don't get it. There's something there. And we ourselves have oftentimes failed to recognize that Christianity does look different than the world. It just does. It looks completely different. And you kids, you can look at the world and think, that looks like amazing, total, awesome, fun, and whatever other adjective you want to throw on it. And you don't realize that's death. That's not life. Christ is life. Do you want to be an enemy of God? Then love the world. But if you want to be a friend of him, live your life on these two things. One, believe what it is God says in his word. Believe it. It is his word. It is our authority. Believe that. And two, hear and obey what it says. And have the audacity to repent of your sin and not entertain it. The Lord tests us to see if we really want to give ourselves to a complete and total dependence upon Him. He tested Israel. He he tests us. And He tests us to see if we will learn war, the real war behind all the warring, and prepare our hands for such measures. That's Psalm 144, verse 1. And He will send us to the ground to lick the dust as a reminder that that is where we came from. And yet He will come and raise us from the dead and lift us up in glory. And that is grace. And that is amazing. And so we have to cry out to the Lord, thanking Him for what He has done. We die with Christ. We are raised with Christ. And this gospel is your hope. It is. Let's pray. Father, we give You the glory tonight and the praise. You have been gracious to us. You have given us so many blessings, Lord. You have given us Your Word. There are so many who stumble along this path because they see the cares of the world as being more important. They worship the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever, Paul says. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are ruling and reigning now, that You are actively putting Your enemies under Your feet. And I can think of a lot of enemies who need to be placed under Your feet. But we trust in Your sovereign plan Help us to be faithful. Father, we parents tonight collectively cry out to You and ask for Your blessing on our children that they would know and fear the Lord God Almighty. They are, in fact, arrows in the quiver being sharpened and molded so that they can be shot into the darkness for Your glory when the time is right. So we pray for them. Keep us from these idolatries. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.